Horrible beyond conception was the change which had taken place in my best friend, Crawford Tillingist. I had not seen him since that day, two months and a half before. When he told me toward that goal his physical and metaphysical researches were leading, when he had answered my odd and almost frightened remonstrances by driving me from his laboratory and his house in a burst of fanatical rage, I had known that he remained mostly shut in the attic laboratory with the accursed electrical machine, eating little and excluding even the servants, but I had not thought that a brief period of ten weeks could so alter and disfigure any human creature. It is not pleasant to see a stout man suddenly grown thin, and it is even worse when the baggy skin becomes yellowed or grayed, the eyes sunken, circled, and uncannily glowing, the forehead veined and corrugated, and the hands tremulous and twitching. And if added to this there be a repellent unkeptness, a wild disorder of dress, a bushiness of dark hair white at the roots, and an unchecked growth of white beard on a face once clean-shaven, the cumulative effect is quite shocking. But such was the aspect of Crawford Tillinghast on the night his half-coherent message brought me to his door after my weeks of exile. Such was the specter that trembled as it admitted me, candle in hand, and glanced furtively over its shoulder, as if fearful of unseen things in the ancient, lonely house set back from Benedictine Street. That Crawford Tillinghast should ever have studied science and philosophy was a mistake. These things should be left to the frigid and impersonal investigator, for they offer two equally tragic alternatives to the man of feeling and action. Despair, if he fail in his quest, and terrors, unutterable and unimaginable, if he succeed. Tillinghast had once been the prey of failure, solitary and melancholy, but now I knew with nauseating fears of my own that he was the prey of success. I had indeed warned him ten weeks before, when he burst forth with his tale of what he felt himself about to discover. He had been flushed and excited then, talking in a high and unnatural, though always pedantic voice. What do we know, he had said, of the world and the universe about us. Our means of receiving impressions are absurdly few, and our notions of surrounding objects infinitely narrow. We see things only as we are constructed to see them, and can gain no idea of their absolute nature. With five feeble senses we pretend to comprehend the boundlessly complex cosmos, yet other beings with wider, stronger, or different range of senses might not only see very differently the things we see, but might see and study whole worlds of matter, energy, and life which lie close at hand, yet can never be detected with the senses we have. I have always believed that such strange, inaccessible worlds exist at our very elbows, and now I believe I have found a way to break down the barriers. I'm not joking. Within twenty-four hours— that machine near the table will generate waves acting on unrecognized sense organs that exist in us as atrophied or rudimentary vestiges.
Those waves will open up to us many vistas unknown to man and several unknown to anything we consider organic life. We shall see that at which dogs howl in the dark and that at which cats prick up their ears after midnight. We shall see these things and other things which no breathing creature has yet seen. We shall overlap time, space, and dimensions, and without bodily motion peer to the bottom of creation. When Tillingus said these things, I remonstrated, for I knew him well enough to be frightened rather than amused. But he was a fanatic, and drove me from the house. Now he was no less a fanatic, but his desire to speak had conquered his resentment, and he had written me imperatively in a hand I could scarcely recognize. As I entered the abode of the friend so suddenly metamorphosed to a shivering gargoyle,